Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And we are right at the beginning of a brand new series for us, something that we've never quite done before. So we appreciate you joining us for what is an experiment in an already experimental make-it-up-as-we-go-along project. Um, In this new series, we're going to be taking a look at uh, pieces of pop culture, some that are really, really well-known, some that we'll take some introduction to, and, and each of us will get turns to talk about how some piece of pop culture has made a connection for us to our faith life in some way, whether explicit and intentional from the authors or creators, or whether it's one of those things that we see and wink and go, maybe the author didn't intend this, but I see a connection here, that kind of thing. Um, And maybe to set the table, um, there's a line that's been sticking in my head. Uh, It's an old line attributed to Karl Barth, that preachers should have uh, the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Mm -hmm. And of course, that awareness that as as our task as people who are meant to be connecting points between these ancient scriptures and the real lives of people, that we need to have a a foot in both worlds, both the ancient world and the the language of faith and sometimes the jargon of uh, church life, but also that we have to uh, recognize there will be points of connection, not just in the day's headlines, but maybe in the entertainment section as well, um, and that there are things we can learn, and that sometimes people who are writing stories or making movies or writing songs or creating cartoons or what have you... um, also have ways of connecting us with with, uh, ideas about our faith, whether they intended to or not. And that's maybe our other disclaimer, that things we talk about here, we're not making the claim that the people who created these pieces of pop culture, whether they're songs or books or movies or whatever, necessarily intended them as parables or allegories about the Christian faith or not, we're recognizing we're bringing some of that. Uh, so uh, unlike good preaching, which is meant to be exegetical, where you read what's already in there in the text, we are unashamedly doing eisegesis, reading into things, things that we are choosing to see in them. It's sort of an exercise in reader response criticism for people who are fans of that bit of uh, textual uh, study. But all right, that laying the ground, we're going to you're going to take a look at places in pop culture that have connected us. Each of us is going to get a turn in an episode to highlight something, and uh, we cast lots, which is a biblical thing to do, and uh, Sarah, you get to be the one to introduce us to some piece of pop culture. So uh, tell us what what you've got for us. So I have, it is a quite large body of work. Um, I'm going to talk about Discworld by Terry Pratchett. Uh, Discworld is a 41-book series, but within these 41 series, there are many mini-series. So there's different arcs that follow different characters set within this world. And the only series that I've actually read, I've read like a book here and there of other series, but like the only one that I've read like the majority of the series is the Tiffany Aching series, which is a young adult series. Um, there's five, six books. Um, Wee Freeman, A Hat Full of Sky, Wintersmith, I Shall Wear Midnight, and then Terry Pratchett's very last book, The Shepherd's Crown. Um, I've only read all of them except for the last one because I can't bring myself to read it yet. Ah. But, um, so, quick background because since this is such a huge world that Terry Pratchett created, it, it takes a lot of background information to just set up how this connects to my faith journey. Um, but it... Um, so Terry Pratchett, the author, he, um, was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II, which I think is so cool. And I think he had a quote 
directly after this happened that something about you can't ask a fantasy author if he wants to be knighted and expect him to say no. <laughs> and then he said something about how he the only thing he was missing was a sword. <laughs> the pen is mightier than the sword anyway, so if you're a writer, you already win, right? It is, but the story gets cooler <laughs> okay. because I guess Meteor fell in his neighbor's field and he and his friends went and dug part of it up and turned it into a sword. How cool. <laughs> like, after he got knighted. Wow. Nice. That is every cool. knight needs to have a sword. Well said. But uh, he started writing the Discworld series in the 80s, so 1980s. And, like I said, it spans 41 books. And he continued writing even after he was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's in the early 2000s. And um, at the end there, he was relying completely on dictating to um, computer software because he absolutely loved computers and thought that they were the coolest thing ever to be invented, and also to an assistant. Um, so he continued writing up until he died in 2015. Uh, the Shepherd's Crown, it was the very last book that he wrote, but he knew it was going to be his last book, so he was able to tie up a lot of loose ends that existed within Discworld. Um, Discworld is this really interesting fantasy world, completely different, separate from our own world. Um, it is a flat disc supported on the backs of four elephants on top of a giant flying turtle. Um, so it exists, obviously, in a region of the universe where reality is somewhat less consistent than it <laughs> appears in our own world Do, am I, is it correct that i think in some uh strands of um uh indian uh like in in the subcontinent of indian mythology that they're told a creation story about the world being built on the back of elephants on top of turtles possibly okay because i've seen similar themes in other fantasy worlds like avatar the last airbender okay where like giant sea turtles are the one like the ones that gave the humans the bending ability mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. another great series highly recommend I good to know connect it <laughs> side <at> note <laughs> just can't connect it to my spiritual life it's just a really it's good just interesting got it yeah um Oh, I just lost my train So of that's where the, the world, I'm sorry for disrupting, oh, but so okay. the world is a flat disc on top of elephants, on top of turtles. Yeah. And so, again, since this is a 41-book series, there's something in it for just about everybody. Um, it is mostly satire, so there are arcs and storylines about um, detectives, and it's making fun of all of those detective, detective <laughs> books or movies that you have mm -hmm. ever seen. Um, there's similarly, uh, like the series that I'm going to talk about today is about a coming of age story about a young witch. So, you know, clearly that's very different than a story about a detective. There's also death personified. So there is a couple of books about death and his daughter or granddaughter. I'm not really sure because I haven't read those books, but you know, these stories follow mm -hmm. death as death goes around and does what death does. Um... But, yeah, Tiffany Aching, she is the protagonist of the series of books that I, in particular, really enjoy. Um, I came across them on the recommendation in seminary from my now husband, because he is a huge fan of the entire Discworld world, um, and he thought I would like them, and I found them to be very helpful because... At tip, the, this series follows Tiffany aching as she grows up. Mm -hmm. It begins at when she's like age nine and she discovers that she is a witch 
and she's living in part of the world where witches are persecuted. Um, they are not encouraged to the point of um, there was one woman in her village that was suspected of being a witch and she was essentially driven out of her home and nobody was allowed to give her refuge and she froze to death in winter mm. because witches are not allowed. And she, so she discovers that she is, an, is a witch and what that means at age nine. And then the next book is she is of the age of all girls in her village, like which is like 11 or 12, where she goes out to service for the first time. Of She leaves home and, and is an apprentice to somebody. So what she tells everybody is she's going to go and be, I think, a maid in somebody's house. Um, but in reality, the person that she's going to go and be a maid for is, in fact, an older witch who is teaching her what it means to be a witch. And... This is where I was very surprised because a lot of the things that she was learning about being a witch is things that I was learning about being a pastor. Hmm. And so Terry Pratchett, who is, who was an atheist, is writing this book about pastoral ministry. (laughs) (laughs) Whether he knows it or not. Right, Right, exactly. Because he was very public about the fact that he grew up in the Anglican church in England. And, um you know, grew up going to church maybe twice a year. He knew the Ten Commandments, but that's as far as his religious training went. But he seems to understand that there is this need in this world, in, you know, both disc world and our own world, that pastoral care is important. Mm -hmm. And since he didn't really want to give clerics that kind of power and authority in disc world, he gave it to women. He Mm -hmm. gave it to witches. And so here is a brief excerpt from A Hatful of Skies. This is the second book in the series where she is going off and training under the witch Miss Level. Tiffany found that there were more than chores and research, though. There is what Miss Level called filling what's emptying and emptying what's full. Filling what's empty and emptying what's full meant wandering around the local villages and the isolated farms and, mostly, doing medicine. There was always bandages to change or expected mothers to talk to. Witches did a lot of midwifery, which is a kind of emptying what's full. But Miss Level, wearing her pointy hat, had only to turn up at a cottage for other people to suddenly come visiting by sheer accident. And there was an awful lot of gossip and tea drinking. Miss Level moved in a twitching, living world of gossip, though Tiffany noticed that she picked up a lot more than she passed on. It seemed to be a world made up entirely of women, but occasionally, out in the lanes, a man would strike up a conversation about the weather, and somehow, by some sort of code, an ointment or a potion would get handed over. Tiffany couldn't quite work out how Miss Level got paid. Certainly, the basket she carried filled up more than it emptied. They walked past a cottage, and a woman would come scurrying out with a fresh-baked loaf or a jar of pickles, even though Miss Level hadn't stopped there. But they'd spend an hour somewhere else, stitching up the leg of a farmer who had been careless with an axe, and get a cup of tea and stale biscuit. It didn't seem fair. Oh, it evens out, said Miss Lovell, as they walked on through the woods. You do what you can. People give what they can, when they can. Old Slapwick there, with a leg. He's as mean as a cat. But there'll be a big cut of beef on my doorstep before the week's end. You can bet on it. His wife will see to it. 
and pretty soon people will be killing their pigs for the winter and I'll get more lard, ham, bacon, and sausages turning up than a family could eat in a year. You will? What will you do with all that food? Store it, said Miss Lovell. But you... I store it in other people. It's amazing what you can store in other people, Miss Lovell laughed at Tiffany's expression. I mean, I take what I don't need around to those who don't have a pig, or who's going through a bad patch, or who won't have anyone to remember them. But that means they'll owe you a favor. Right. And so it keeps going on around. It all works out. Hmm. So yeah, this is a, definitely a book that taught me a lot about pastoral care right as I was going into a CPE which is a clinical pastoral education where you spend a summer often in a hospital doing chaplaincy work. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I found it tremendously helpful. That idea of uh, the, the, the witch's work is filling what's empty and emptying what's full, um, mm -hmm. that seems like that's ripe with connections to pastoral ministry in the mm -hmm. life of the church. Are there particular places where you see your own work and calling in pastoral ministry as emptying what's full or filling what's empty? Um, I think the biggest connection, which was didn't appear in this excerpt, was the vigil that we often keep as mm. pastors as people are preparing to die. Mm -hmm. And um, that is a big part of also what the witches do is they're the ones there sitting at the bedside to greet death as a friend mm -hmm. and to, you know, hand over the person over to death, um, which, like I said, is a personified Character, person yeah. mm -hmm. in, in this world. And, you know, I think we do a lot of that as pastors. We go and we sit at people's bedsides in the hospital or at nursing homes, and we hold their hands and we pray with them and we talk with their family members who don't do that as often as we do. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's sometimes difficult for me to remember that the person I'm going to go see who is actively dying, this is, I don't even know, I've lost count of how many people I've sat at their yeah. bedsides when they've died. And, but for them, that might be the first person they've ever done that with. Mm -hmm. And so there is comfort in knowing that there is somebody who's done this before, um, but, yeah, I think that in particular, and I'm not sure if I, that's probably emptying what's full, hmm. I'm guessing, but. <laughs> mm -hmm. Although, I, like, sometimes I, I hear people talk as they go through times of grief, and they talk, like, the recurring image that, they, that people come to is that sense of feeling empty, that somebody's, you know, space is missing at the table, mm -hmm. or whether, so whether it's someone who's after there's been a death and there's this grief in their life, or whether they are anticipating that someone is sick and they can sort of feel like they're they're not doing what they used to do or you know, watching somebody slowly decline. They talk about that kind of feeling of emptiness and that our presence there isn't necessarily to fix, but to be in that empty place with them for a while. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I could see using either either side of that. But yeah. I, I think that's such a that's a, a really important connection you've made about that our, our work as pastors uh, so often is that kind of accompanying as people are going through those difficult places. And for me, like her payment and how that kind of yeah. happens reminds me so much of what we do as pastors because we, we do it not because... You know, we don't do funerals and weddings and all, and, and of course the visitations and other things that, you know, we don't get honorariums for. You know, we don't do that for the payment. We, right. we do it because it's something that needs to be done. And these witches are doing it because it's something that needs to be done. And yet they still, the people recognize it needs to be done. And so they're willing to give 
to that. Yeah, there's also this great portion in this series that um, Tiffany's grandmother, who dies like a couple of years before the first book, um, Tiffany suspects that she was a witch, mm-hmm. um, but just a secret one because clearly witches were not allowed in her community. Um, and, but she's all of the other witches that she comes across are super skeptical about this because they never met the grandmother. Mm-hmm. And so they think that it's just a young girl's imagination. And so she's frequently being questioned by the other witches, like, well, did your grandmother do this? Did your grandmother do this? And one of the questions is, did your grandmother go around and, like, do all of these things? And Tiffany thinks about it, and she goes, no. Honestly, she didn't. But she made people do that for each other. Mm. And the, um, the response from the witches is, oh, only truly good witches can accomplish that. I'll never be that good. I can't get people to do that. Uh-huh. To get, you know, the people in town to take care of each other. Yeah. Um, and I think that was also, you know, such a great line that pastoral ministry is something that we all do. We've been trained at doing it. Mm-hmm. But it's not something that should be limited to right. just pastors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That we as Christians or just as fellow humans should care for other mm-hmm. fellow humans. And that part of our job as people who are leaders and pastoral uh, ministers in, in our settings isn't just that we're supposed to be the ones who fix people's problems or show up. I and mean, that may be a piece of it from time to time, but also mm-hmm. that in a way, our, at our best, we're supposed to set off the chain reaction or be a part of that chain mm-hmm. reaction so that others then do that. That our job is about equipping or helping other people see their gifts so that mm-hmm. they do it as well. Yep. That's a really, really important insight. I love that idea that it doesn't look like she was doing it, but she was actually doing the higher level, you know, the the, the even 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 greater kind of uh, sorcery of getting other people to do those kinds of things for each other. That's really interesting. Yeah, I know. For in my denomination, because we move so often, you know, the pastors are itinerant, and we move. You know, if you're at a place for five to six years, you're doing good. And and so the idea of trying to get the lady to do those kind of things, be like you know Tiffany's grandmother. And so that, you know, we do them as part of our role, but to get the lady to do them as well and just showing that kindness is, is a goal that I have in the churches I've been in. Um, sometimes it works better than others. <laughs> and we should all strive to be like Granny Aching, mm-hmm. although she was quite fond of her tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> There's something kind of humbling when I think, too, about um, as much as sometimes... Uh, we who um, identify ourselves as religious professionals, you know, we're the, we're the ones teaching other people you should share and be kind to take care of each other. Um, because we imagine they, people won't do this without somebody goading them and preaching at them mm-hmm. and telling them to do this. Like I think about like in the Amish community, and there's a number of mm-hmm. Amish communities near where we live, where without somebody who gets up and pounds on a pulpit every week to tell them to do this, like they do this because that's their way of life, mm-hmm. and they teach each other in community that, yeah, when somebody is sick, we bring over food, and when mm-hmm. someone is in need, you know, like that... There are other communities and other ways to do it. And and uh, it's not to say that pastors are unimportant, but to say, like, we should also kind of get it that um, our role is really, if we're really honest, kind of a pretty small role. And we're a little, we're like, you know, a, a middle step in this chain reaction. Really, Jesus sets it all off. Mm-hmm. And it's meant to ripple beyond us. And uh, th- I think that's an important humbling thing for at least for to, to hear from me as a pastor, where sometimes um, I can feel tempted to feel like, 
um, I've got to make all these things happen, or I've got to go and mm-hmm. fix, or something like. Nope. There's a very small. There are times when I'm the one who gets to show up in this moment or that moment, and like you said, Sarah, there are times where we may, because of greater frequency, have an ease at being in the presence of death because we're more likely to have been there in that in that holy moment before. Um, but it doesn't mean that we're that. Um, uh, that 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 God's work ha- uh, only happens when we're in the room, or that mm-hmm. um, uh, something holy and sacred can only happen when somebody who's uh, wearing a cross necklace can be like, nope. They, 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 God reserves the right to show up in moments when there's no official religious professionals around. But we hope that our role is that kind of accompanying thing too. Right, and seeing pastoral ministry in that light as not necessarily as the thing that pastors do, but those moments that do happen. Um, you know, we, and I'm, I'm kind of thankful for this, we aren't expected to be in the delivery room mm-hmm. during when people give birth, which was something that, like, the witches in Discworld mm-hmm. did, like, they were midwives. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I gave birth to my first son, there was a nurse that was assigned to me, and she was my nurse for her entire 12-hour shift. Mm-hmm. And I gave birth one minute after her, her shift ended, so she, like, just stayed for Aww, me. Nice. Um, but, you know, it was, I had 12 hours of rapport with her mm-hmm. um, before I gave birth. And so, like, I knew her. She was the one that came in every 20 minutes or so to check on me and, yeah. you know, make sure I had ice cubes and also to, mm-hmm. you know, sternly lecture me on why I couldn't eat. <laughs> um, but she was that pastoral ministry presence yeah. for me at that moment because she was the one that was you know, coaching me while I was actually pushing and going, you're doing great, you're, you're a rock star, and, you know, I loved her. I hated my husband. <laughs> he was being so annoying, but I loved her. Uh-huh. Like, she was the voice for me that was, mm-hmm. that walked me through that very scary, important moment in my life. And was she intentional, like, was she, was she aware that that was a type of pastoral ministry for me? No, probably yeah. not. Yeah. But she had done that hundreds mm-hmm. of times before. But... Yeah, so it's this 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 role that the witches in this world fill is, you know, I think we're honored that we get to fill part of it. Yeah. But there are other people who also fill yeah. part of mm-hmm. those roles in our world, and they're very necessary roles. It uh, reminds me. It feels like there's a piece in in our tradition, in, in Christian tradition, that echoes that idea that that something sacred and holy might be happening. Uh, when you least expect it, that that line, um, that parable Jesus tells in Matthew's gospel, you know, that I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, and I was thirsty and you gave me something mm-hmm. to drink. Um, and of course, the the, the punchline of that, you know, when were, when did all these things happen? Jesus said, "When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me." That like, there's a sense of in both sides of the transaction, you know, like the person who's being fed is the is the face of Christ, and also the person who's there to help can also bear the face mm-hmm. of Christ too, mm-hmm. and. Um, that recognition that Christ can be on both sides of that interaction at the same time um, is an important one. Because I, I think sometimes, I, I know like in, in, in our church life, we, we have a, a tradition in one of our congregations of going to the local state mental hospital a couple times a year. And I can remember when I first went with them, um, and we'll go for a time of worship and snacks because that's the thing to do because Lutherans eat. Um, and uh, thinking like when I was first going, oh, we're there to help these people. We're there to you know fix or brighten their day or whatever. And you know to some degree that happens. But at the same time, everybody I've seen from our church who goes walks away like, oh my goodness, that they they blessed me. They enriched mm-hmm. my faith. And instead 
instead of it being like, oh, you poor slobs are here to fix you, that there's this both and, that we're there to be instruments of, of blessing, to be the face of Christ, and at the same time we encounter Christ there at the same time, and that Christ is there in, in all the places that you expect, you know, the religious churchy people, they've come, but also the people who are ordinary, who mm-hmm. weren't, weren't expecting um, necessarily. It reminded me, too, when you talk about that, that role of the nurse, as visiting somebody in the hospital um, uh, over, over the weekend, and um, the nurse comes in, and in addition to the, all the technical medical stuff they needed to do, so there they are checking the IV machine, and like all the stuff that they have skills for that are specific medical skills that I don't understand, it was also her role to be the one to pour water into this uh, patient's cup. Mm-hmm. And it was this sort of cool moment of like, nobody had asked her and said, would you, because I can't. And because the patient could have. But it was just this like, she slipped into this role of like, I'm here to take care of this whole gamut of needs. There are technical things that I'm the only one who's mm-hmm. got the expertise to do. And it's just the sort of sliding right into the serving kind of role. And I see the parallels in pastoral ministry there too, mm-hmm. right? That, that it's not just that we're there to officially do Sunday morning things in white robes and that we're the mm-hmm. ones who open the holy books and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also, you know, setting tables and washing dishes and um, sitting with people in living rooms and uh, drinking weak coffee in church basements. And, like, mm-hmm. all these things are part of our role, not just the things that look official or that are our expertise. Yeah, anybody, in a sense, could sit in a waiting room with somebody, um, and sometimes anybody does, mm-hmm. but sometimes that's what we're called to do, not because we've got special skill and we sit in a waiting room better than somebody else, but because we're called to just show up. Honestly, those are some of my favorite moments of pastoral mm-hmm. ministry. Yeah. Like, I, as much as I love preaching and teaching Bible studies and stuff, those moments where I can either have lunch with somebody and just sit and just have conversation about whatever, yeah. you know, life, whatever, or being in the waiting room while somebody's in surgery and sitting with their family, or visiting someone in their home and, and grabbing something from the kitchen for them, if they, you know, yeah. those are some of my favorite parts of ministry because that's where I get the real connection. Yeah. with my people and so I'm really interested yeah. to maybe check out this this series it's a very good series like I'm only touching the tip of the iceberg because yeah. there's a lot of other things that mm-hmm. are going on in these books but they're very very good I, I was thinking of something else you said a minute ago, Sarah, when you talked about your experience uh, in as, as a, a mother giving birth and how pastors usually aren't in the delivery room, thank God. But at the same time, like, I've been... I mean, other in, than my husband. Right, right, right. But yeah, but like, I've been there in the waiting room with families a lot of times, and... Um, uh, one of those moments of privilege, like I've I've been there getting to hold the baby when they are minutes old, um, and at the same time we get to be with people sometimes at, in their last minutes, mm-hmm. and sometimes we get to be there in the room as the one who's watching and noticing the breath stops when everybody else is like not able to focus on that, and that there's a real sense of of privilege that in in, in a good sense of it, we get invited into these moments that like. Very few people mm-hmm. are, are allowed and welcomed in, and maybe because we've built up the rapport that we are safe people and mm-hmm. that we're people who uh, won't ruin those moments, um, that we're allowed to be a part of them. But there's something, there is something sacred and something holy about those moments, and that we get to be a part of them. And and maybe because over the long haul, we get to be with people in ordinary moments that aren't in hospital rooms either. That that's almost where what we 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 earn the the capital. That later on, like people say, yeah, you were with me on an ordinary Thursday. You had lunch in my uh, in my kitchen table or mm-hmm. you know uh, we, we, we talked while we were sitting around waiting somewhere and of course I'd invite you into this moment or that moment and we often get to be there really really close into those moments that are defining and, and sacred maybe mm-hmm. yeah yeah I think we most pastors have stories of those emotional whiplash days yeah. where in the morning they um, did a baptism in a church service and in the afternoon, 
they either did a funeral or they went and sat at somebody's bedside as they died. Right. But yeah, those moments happen because they're just part of life. Right. And we get to be there for yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I like that idea that part of what it is to be uh, a, a a pastor, at least in the traditions that we come from, is the, the idea of that we're there to accompany people, and that it, it, it's not simply that we're the theological expert who only is there to answer Bible questions. That may be a piece of what we do, mm-hmm. but uh, and we're not just there to do the Sunday morning routine because nobody else can do that. But mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we get to accompany people, and it's not like God only resides in or through or around us, but we get to be a reminder in our physical presence that God's there too. Um, even if we're the ones saying, yeah, God's here, whether even when I'm not in the room. But, like, our presence is one of those, like, here's a reminder that God's here with us in the midst of what we're going through, too. You know, I really feel bad for, for Tiffany's town and, and not accepting these witches because of all the comfort that they bring. You know, and, mm-hmm. and I think of, of folks that when they go through tragedy that, like the author or atheists, that don't have that pastoral connection mm-hmm. and how they make it through that. And what what they're missing out on by allowing that kind of presence to come into their life. And that is part of the series. Um, it's part of the series that I haven't read in a while because I've been slowly the last month or two rereading this series. Um, but, you know, this the, the series ends with her as a young woman. Mm-hmm. And so she, at one point, does complete her training and she goes home because... The, um, the land that she is from, it's called the chalk because it is basically just made up of chalk. Mm-hmm. And um, the, that is part of the whole thing of, oh, you can't grow a good witch on chalk. Mm-hmm. Like, you need, you need good solid rock as the foundation <laughs> for witches. And, mm-hmm. um, and, but she does go home and kind of just says, here I am. Mm. You can accept me or not, but here I am, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be doing the work that I've been set out to do, um, because witches aren't supposed to be paid for their work, which mm-hmm. is, you know, we right. do, as professional religious people, we do get paid mm-hmm. um, so that we can eat and stuff, but it's, they're expected to be bivocational, so mm-hmm. she continues to work on her parents' farm as the dairymaid because she's good with cheese, <laughs> and she continues making the cheese and as she makes the cheese she also does this work that yeah. she was now trained to do in witchery and all of that that entails and kind of just forces her people to accept yeah. her mm. but you know it's a very like here I am yeah. you can accept me or not but I'm not that's not going to stop me from caring for you because you're one of my people it's interesting in a way like how that that in in, in my mind speaks greatly to one of the the challenges that religious professionals in 21st century America have in that like sometimes churches really do struggle with how can we pay the pastor mm-hmm. and there I mean you don't have to go too far back in the neck of the woods that we live in where pastors were paid in chickens you know it was like mm-hmm. you know like there, there was no like well here's the official regulations of how much a pastor is supposed to be paid it's we've called you to be our pastor we will not let you starve but it will probably be produce from our farm that we bring mm-hmm. you from time to time and um, that there there was something a lot closer to the witch system in a lot of religious life, and how many uh, congregations or, or church bodies are are making use of people who also have other jobs as well. And in some ways, that brings the challenge of how do you balance? You know, when one calls you in one place and you need to be two places at once. But on the other hand, it also means the the 
theoretically at least, that the pastor doesn't feel like, I can't say this because uh, the people might get upset and uh, they'll get they'll, they'll fire me and I won't be like, there's this, nope, I'm here, I'm, I'm here to speak the word that God has sent me to speak, I'm here to be this kind of presence, and whether you like it or not, I've, I've got a way of, of, of keeping a roof over my head, so here's what I have to say. There, there's something certainly biblical, like, you know, Paul, who gets remembered as a tent maker or leather worker or whatever, who, who can pay his own way, and that's part of what allows him to... Um, stay in communities even when the Christian community is struggling mm-hmm. to get off the ground and he can be there and be like, look, I'm, I'm not going to starve here. I can keep making a life for myself. And at the same time, he can still do mm-hmm. ministry work for people too. I really appreciate your being willing to share this series with us. So mm-hmm. uh, just for folks who maybe heard it at the beginning and forgot, give us the, the title of the book in particular you read from and the title of the series and the author so that people who are wanting to write it down and remember it and we can all put it on our Amazon wish list or whatever. Okay, so the book that I read from was the second in the series. It's called A Hat Full of Sky. The author's name is Terry Pratchett. He wrote the Discworld series. Um, and Tiffany Aching is the series arc. Um, so it starts with We Free Men. W-E-E, Free Men. To we like small. Yes. We, gotcha. Yeah. So that is the first book of the series. Cool. Well, um, I'm excited to see where the rest of our series continues along the way, Mm -hmm. Um, but hope that you find this valuable to see where pop culture things make connections with our faith life in lots of different directions. So join us next time for more adventures uh, here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you guys. Bye.